Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 406 with my guest Jessica McCabe. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show and uh, any social media handles is uh, MentalPod. Um, let's see. Interesting week. I found out I have to have surgery on my elbow, which totally uh, fucking blows because I'm going <laughs> to not be able to do my three favorite things, woodwork, play hockey, or play guitar. Um, and I guess the recovery is going to be at least three months and I don't even have a surgery date set yet, but I'm hopeful that it will get rid of the pain in uh, in my elbow. Um, but uh, I think this will be maybe my 13th surgery, not on my elbow, uh, but just in general surgeries I've I've had my entire life. So I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty f- familiar with the inside of a of a hospital, but um, I. I have trouble asking for help, and my first thought was, I'm only going to have the use of one arm, because for the first three weeks, your arm is in a sling, and you can't sleep on your side. You have to sleep sitting up, (laughs) like Dracula. So maybe I'll wear some fangs, I'll avoid daylight, and I'll talk in a Romanian accent. Um, But I'm thinking to myself... And I've had shoulder surgeries before where my arm was in a sling for a couple of weeks, but um, I was 
living with my then wife. And so if I needed a jar opened or something like that, I could ask for help. But I live by myself now. And uh, I'm just like, well, am I going to... Am I going to be able to do everything? I'm so afraid of being an inconvenience to somebody. And I was talking to my uh, my girlfriend, um, Christina, and she was like, well, I'll come over and help you. And I didn't want to inconvenience her because I live completely the opposite direction of where she lives. Um between her and her workplace. So she would have to go way out of her way. And then, you know, she leaves for work at like, I don't know, five in the morning or something like that. And um, I'm just really, uh, it's so uncomfortable, the thought of inconveniencing somebody. And, you know, she told me it's, it's not inconveniencing. I care about you and I want to help you. And why is it so hard for me to be comfortable with that? I don't know. And then the other thing that was that was nice about the kind of budding relationship um, that we have is uh, I was talking online to someone who was sharing their experience with me that was kind of had a had a an abusive mom um that was violating and not just violating but like disturbingly violating and I don't want to go into all the all the details of it um but people ask me all the time don't you get burned out dealing with such heavy subject matter. And I've always kind of felt like, um, no, that's where <laughs> me being able to compartmentalize things in my life has probably probably helped. And I get a feeling of meaning and purpose from doing it. And I, talking to this person and being there, you know, listening to their story, letting them know that they're not alone and, you know, giving them a little advice here and there, you know, as they start healing, felt very um, gratifying, you know, as sad as I was for what she uh, and her family are going through, it felt good to be there. But after I got off the call, I felt more sadness than I think I have ever felt in eight years of doing this show, you know, around, at least in terms of someone else's experience, hearing someone else's experience. And I don't know if it's because it it brought up stuff that reminded me of my childhood that I haven't really thought about or dealt with. I, I don't know. Nothing is coming to mind, but in that moment, I was in that place of, I don't want to reach out for help. I don't want to, um, is this, is this big enough of a deal for me to call somebody? And it was like 11 o'clock at night. And, and I, um, so I called, uh, my girlfriend and I guess this was like a new thing in the relationship because this is the first time that, that I, needed emotional support. And I 
called her and I said, uh, I'm just really, really sad. And I was, I think I was afraid that she wasn't going to be able to be there for me in the way that I anticipated or needed. And of course, I was completely wrong. Um, I felt so much better after we got off the phone. And um, I, why am I sharing all this? I, well, for one, I, I get emails uh, sometimes from you guys or in the survey, you'll say, you know, share more of your life. We'd like to know what's going on with you. And that's kind of a slippery slope for me sometimes because I don't want to be the person that doesn't realize they've made everything about themselves. And when they make that realization, it's too late. Like in this episode that's coming up with Jessica, I already feel like I injected too much of my stuff in our, in our interview. But if I feel like there is something that you guys can relate to or it serves some type of purpose, then I, I can, I'm okay with sharing, um, those, those things. And I feel like other people will be able to relate to that feeling of having trouble reaching out because, I don't know, is it that we don't want to be pitied? We don't want to get a half-assed response, which then, I think that's what I'm afraid of, is I'm going to get a half-assed response, and then I'm going to feel even worse than I did before I worked up the courage to share with somebody. So, I suppose what I learned is that in my new relationship, she is capable of emotional support and um, that I should take my own fucking advice once in a while. <laughs> it's so easy to give advice and not take it. The other moment uh, I had was, was in therapy this week and we were talking about the mean voice in the head and how it just berates us. And, and I was thinking, you know, the self-talk is something we will have our entire lives and we can't control the fact that it's going to speak up but we can control what we believe in terms of what it says to us and easier said than done but this analogy kind of occurred to me that it's like if you think of our life as an elevator ride Somebody is going to be with us in the elevator. That self-talk is going to be there. But we get to choose who we invite to be on the elevator with us. And we can kick them off at any time. There will always, we'll always have to have somebody on there because we're always going to be talking to ourselves and thinking about ourselves. But why would we go through our entire life with an asshole on the elevator with us. Again, easier said than done. Saw two great documentaries, the one about Joan Jett. It's streaming right now. And then there's one on Netflix called, Netflix called uh, Feminists, What Were You Thinking? Which, on the surface, sounds like a horrible title. Um, but it's... It's, it sounds like somebody is attacking feminism from the title of it, but uh, it's, it's quite the opposite. And uh, if you're interested in the 70s fem feminist movement and kind of how those um, uh, people feel about it today, um, 
it's just great. It's just a great, it's just a great documentary. And there's some people on there I would love to get as guests. All right. I'm going to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with, uh, with Jessica. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself perfecting anxiety attacks. And about her anxiety, she says, my, my resting stress level is inexperienced medic in zombie apocalypse. That is so fantastic. Thank you. Um, crazy fat lady writes about her depression. Uh, bipolar, checking with myself as I wake up if I feel awesome or suicidal. About her ADD, what was I doing before I was so rudely interrupted? No, I'm sorry. That, that's what my high school science teacher used to say. Um, what, what she said was, what was I doing before I so rudely interrupted myself? Uh, about codependency, where do you end and I start? Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Uh, some snapshots from her life. Uh, laying down in the snow in my pajamas, hoping to freeze to death, getting up because it's way too cold. Uh, having a panic, panic attack before going to work. Having a great fucking time and lots of laughs at work. Having a panic, panic attack before going to work. Repeat every day. Um, having sex with my partner and still feeling like he's not close enough. Should I fucking eat him to feel satisfied? To which I say, yes. Eat away. I say you even pair a wine with him. And I have no idea where you, whether you want to go white or red. Um... So I would suggest going to a very high-end wine store and then just very subtly saying, what goes with human flesh? This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Ivy's butthole. And in parentheses, why don't we talk about this more? Question mark. That's true. Uh, Ivy's butthole because of all of the attention on Herbert's butthole when he was alive uh, did actually lead to her seeking therapy, but she couldn't find somebody who specializes in butthole therapy. What am I doing? I am technically an adult, but there are so many times, especially my sense of humor, where I do not feel like an adult. Uh, her awfulsome moment. Today I made my bulimic mom laugh so hard she threw up. Her gag reflex really isn't what it used to be. Thank you for sharing that. Um, a guy who calls himself anti-Buddha writes about his depression. I could almost, almost miss feeling blue if my thoughts would form into something complete. Oh, that is so good. That inability to really cohesively find a concrete truth or way to summarize things is one of the shittiest things about depression. The difficulty making decisions. About his anxiety, I need friends in my life, but it really hurts to have them. Um, about his anger issues, I don't allow myself to have feelings just in case they get away from me. And then a snapshot from his life. 
burning my knuckles on a stove top to stop the rage or to shock myself out of a depressive spiral. Oh, buddy, that sounds so fucking unmanageable, man. I don't, I don't have any, um, suggestions or ideas for that other than to just keep, um, looking for, for help because that is a shitty, shitty way to live and to have to cope. But I know people, people can, um, find a way to manage, uh, the urge to, to self-harm and anger and all that stuff. Because um, it's funny, it's never really about the behavior. It's about the feelings underneath that are that are driving the behavior. A woman who calls herself constantly tired, um, share, has bipolar, um, and any comments to make the podcast better, uh, you should make bipolar or mood disorder one of the categories in this survey. Well, I do actually. I have depression, and then there's a box that you can check uh, underneath it so that you can specify you know, if it's another type of depression other than just straight depression, i.e. bipolar or uh, whatever. Uh, but then she writes, it's weird that it isn't there and it's not as if it isn't difficult or less valid than the others. And then the next sentence, thoughtless decision, dot, dot, dot. What? How do you expect me to not feel hurt by saying that I am thoughtless. Um, you know, I think over the last eight years, I have proven that I am not a thoughtless person. And that's a really shitty thing to write. And I know it's probably not about me. It's probably about something that I represent to you by not having that and you not feeling seen, but that doesn't make it okay. And, you know, it's not like it ruined my day or something, but I just felt the need to say, hey, there's a way of expressing your thought without just lashing out at somebody because that's irresponsible and it's just shitty. Um... And then this next survey, I think, is a great example of how somebody can communicate something that they would like to see on the show um, or in the surveys. Uh, she calls herself a soggy roll of toilet paper that has been dropped in the toilet. So it's getting double dipped. You're going twice into the toilet with the toilet paper. Um about her anxiety, I feel like a prey animal, like a guinea pig. All I do is eat and flinch away from sounds and touch. Um, I own guinea pigs, and I feel like our anxious natures rub off on each other. Also, every time I open the fridge, they hear it and squeak for food. I swear they're taunting me. Uh, and then uh, she writes, I'd love an episode specifically on self-harm. I know it's been mentioned by many guests, but I don't know of any episodes in which it's the guest's main struggle. I'd also love a survey on self-harm. Um, people don't realize all the forms it comes in and how dangerous it is as a primary addiction. Alternatively, a survey on addictions in general would fit the bill and probably be more inclusive, exclamation point. That's a lovely way to get your suggestions across. Um, and 
when I created the shame, uh, not the, um, the struggle in a sentence survey, it's why if you look towards the bottom, I have, um, things that say other. So you can put in anything you want. And there is one. There is a, uh, it's not an entire survey on addictions, but there's a category for addictions on the struggle in a sentence survey. So, um, I'd like to think that I've set it up to be pretty, um, pretty extensive. Uh, because you can always put something in the in the other category, and it doesn't mean that your thing isn't important. It is. I'm unimportant. <laughs> um, and somebody else mentioned wanted to hear an episode on agoraphobia. Uh, there are two that really focused on it, and they're in the back catalog, which unfortunately for you uh, is behind a paywall on Stitcher Premium. Um, it's four ninety nine a month. Uh, but it does help the show out financially if you if you do it. Um, and uh, I believe the link is stitcherpremium.com slash mentalpod. Um, there's a link on our uh, website and in the show notes. But there's two episodes that I think are great for it. One is with Steve Agee. Uh, his last name is A-G-E-E. And the other is with Sarah Benincasa, B-E-N-I-N-C-A-S-A. And they're great episodes uh, you know, period. But they also deal with with that. Um, And this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Per Sun and about her anxiety. The world is up in flames and I'm trying to save uh, many kittens. Each failure results in a different type of excruciating chest pain. There's a lot of fucking kittens and even when I'm not sleeping, everything is a nightmare. Oh man, That, that feels so... Uh, real with that analogy. I've never owned a kitten, but <laughs> but I have eaten one. How do I not? How do I pass that joke up? How do I pass that joke up? Um, this is a happy moment I really love, filled out by Sasha Secrets, and she writes. Uh, being able to get up early on weekend mornings and go running down by the canal on the Potomac River. I am normally up by around 6 or 7 and will have a cup of coffee while readying myself. I try to hit the trail by 8 a.m. on a Saturday or Sunday and typically will listen to this podcast during my run. I typically run anywhere from 5 to 8 miles. That is a long fucking way. Uh, it's rare that anyone is out this early on the path with the exception of an occasional biker. It's one of the greatest moments that I've been able to consistently experience in years. It also reminds me that I am indeed happy to be alive and not as dead as I should have been a year ago. The little things really do play a large role in our lives. I want to be able to create out of, um, I want to, I want to say that I feel lucky to experience this moment, which I do, but also feel proud that I'm able to rejoice in a moment that I've been able to create out of sheer decision and will. I'm not sure I would have been able to do this a year or so ago. Uh, What a beautiful, beautiful moment. And um, I've got to imagine that you're probably listening to this episode as we speak, which is probably weird. I've heard people mention that, that they, you know, are cleaning the house or, you know, at the gym and they hear their survey read and it, and it kind of, uh, you know, takes them for a loop. 
And so if you are in the middle of your jog right now and you're listening to this, thank you for your moment, but stop right now. Stretch. Stretch out those calves. Walk it out. Just take in the moment. Look at that river, the Potomac fucking river. George Washington crossed that river, bad wig and all, wooden teeth clacking away, probably made out of the cherry trees he chopped down as a little psycho. Just just imagine that little disturbed child running around that area, just filled with stoic 18th century rage. And here you are, 300 years later, looking at that historic body of water and ironically probably dehydrated. Uh, This is uh, an awful moment filled out by Farty McFly. That should not get a laugh. That, That is... I don't want to give you low self-esteem, but that is (laughs) so dumb, it comes back to being funny. So congratulations on (laughs) eliciting my disapproval and also a laugh. That's good work. Well played. Um, He shares... Uh, the past few days, I've been having a fantasy that I was stranded on a tropical island with a girl, just the two of us. After I got off work, I thought about her dying while giving birth to our child. Not what I was planning on happening. It just happened in my mind as if I was experiencing it. I cried most of the way home. I'm mourning as if this person who never actually existed died. Even my supposedly happy fantasies end in tragedy. It's so true, man. You know, when I was single, you know, sometimes I I would I'd be in line at a coffee shop and just seeing like the back of a of a girl's head and and neck. If I liked her hair, or I thought her neck was attractive. I would just start thinking, oh man, I wonder what it would be like. And I haven't seen her face, but just wondering, well, I wonder what it's like to be in a relationship with with that neck, to come home to that neck or to kiss it. And and then so somehow I think about us starting to not get along and how are we going to split up our stuff. And by the time I get to the cashier, I'm pissed off that she has disappointed me in our relationship. It's like our brain is... It's like Lenny from Of Mice and Men. I know it's trying to protect us with hypervigilance and and laying out worst-case scenarios so we're not shocked by bad things, but it just it should not be a leader. It really needs to just, you know, go below deck and row. And you know what? This is a good episode. This ADHD episode uh, interview with Jessica is good because maybe, I don't know, maybe that's something that's kind of ADD or ADHD related, that, that spinning mind that uh, that just needs something to, to fasten onto that it can parse into, you know, details to feast on. I don't know. 
I want to tell you about a sponsor we have. Uh, it is a new podcast, and it's called Hostage. Uh, I think it's up you guys' alley. Or if you live in the suburbs, you're cul-de-sac. Um, it shares stories, usually complicated stories, um, that are behind some of the most intense hostage negotiations um, that in history. And they do a lot of extensive research, and it's pretty comprehensive storytelling. It, it uh, They give you like behind-the-scenes uh, looks at the negotiations, the stuff that the public didn't see, and all the complex shit of like moving people around to extract the people that are being held hostage. And it shows like FBI tactics, all kinds of good shit. And uh, you can check out the three-part episode right now on the Hearst kidnapping, which for those of you that weren't alive was like the, one of the biggest stories of the 1970s and really fucking dramatic. So look for upcoming episodes on the uh, Iranian hostage crisis, also from the 70s, uh, the story of Martin and Gracia Burnham. Am I pronouncing Gracia? Is that right? Uh, and the Moscow Theater. Uh, new episodes releasing every Thursday. So visit Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Hostage. Again, that's H-O-S-T-A-G-E. Or visit Parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash, slash hostage to start listening now. That's Parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash hostage to listen now. All right, and then... Last survey before the interview, a happy moment filled out by Happy Go Anxious. And I just love this. She writes, my happy moment is when the library is empty after closing hour so I can sing as loudly as I want. What a fantastic image. I I say you go whole hog. I say you, you fucking put on roller skates and you do it. And you bring an extra costume, something that just taps into your your inner crazy. And just in case the janitor is going to walk in on you, double down. Like, like be reading from some, like a loud, from some really dry scientific book. And then when you see him walk in, just slowly roll towards him while you're singing. And just creepy eye contact. And then as you get close to him, just slide down your reading glasses and say, shall we form a band? There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization, depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sights. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. 
and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> I'm here with Jessica McCabe, uh, who has a really popular YouTube channel called How to ADHD. Uh, you also do some acting. You've been in a couple of independent movies, but we want to we want to focus in on the crazy. So, uh, we're <laughs> well, gonna... acting is a good place to start. Then yeah, that's very true. Um, you're such a great advocate uh, for mental health and ADHD in in particular. Um, and clearly, uh, you deal with it yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to share uh, so um, in such detail. Uh, let's let's start with um, your life growing up and when you remember it first appearing kind of the general uh, vibe of your childhood growing up any events or moments that were kind of seminal in childhood or adolescence yeah so I actually um, I don't know how many people can say this I had a really ideal childhood at first Uh, I would say the first like 10 11 years of my life were I mean I had a firefighter for a dad and a teacher for a mom and we had a house and they were married and you know three kids and my dad built me a sandbox in the backyard and I went to I went to a private school and I loved to learn I loved to read and I was a smart kid I had um I had a test I remember in second grade it was one of those standardized tests to see like how are you doing and I scored something on on the test and my teachers had to go ask the principal what it meant because it said PHS instead of like you know grade 3.2 or whatever and they were like it's post high school what? So in second grade, I mean, I just, I had an obsession with reading, an obsession with books. As soon as I learned to read, that was my life. And so I was really gifted. And so nobody was really worried. Uh, I walked into a lot of poles, like walking down the street, because I would never go anywhere without a book in my hand. And I think that that masked a lot, because if I was socially anxious, which I was a lot of the time, I absolutely was weird and did not fit in. I, you know, I wasn't weird. I was just reading a book. I just cared about knowledge, you know, and parents kind of celebrated that and teachers didn't worry about me. And it didn't matter that I didn't really have any friends or that I wasn't popular or I got I got left out on the playground because I always had a book to escape into. And it was really nice. Um, and school was all support and encouragement and stickers and, and yay, we're just glad you're reading. So things were pretty easy for me then. Uh, I did come out. To, I did come home without my jacket a lot of the time. Uh, my hair was a mess. I remember my mom would drop me off at school, and my dad would pick me up, and my dad would pick me up, and I'd just be like completely like sticks in my hair and you know dirt on my dress, and he'd look at my mom and be like, "Why did you send her to school like that?" She's like, "I didn't." She looked normal when I when I sent her there, but um, so I you know I was a scatterbrained kid, but I was just a kid who liked books, and uh, it wasn't until middle school that things really became apparent that I needed some sort of help. Um, And it was exacerbated because between seventh and eighth grade, my mom got in a car accident with a drunk driver. And it was a a really bad accident. Um, A couple of her friends were killed and she was permanently injured. Her back is broken. And um, everything that I had in terms of support was just ripped out from under me. We went we went from I went to a private school, happy childhood, parents that were there and involved to my mom's in a hospital bed. My dad couldn't handle it. He checked out. Uh, he was still there, but he wouldn't go visit my mom in the hospital. Um, could not could not handle it. And I think now we know he probably had undiagnosed ADD. He had his own challenges. Um, so I forgive him for all that. But 
I got switched right at puberty, which is always a fun time oh from a private school to, to a public school where I knew nobody. I lost my family and my faith and my friends kind of all at once. Um, and it was really difficult. And the things that had, had kept me like, okay, just gone. And so, um, I crashed pretty hard and suddenly was not doing well in school. My ADHD was just really apparent. I had no executive function. I had no ability to get myself to class on time, like no ability to focus on homework, no ability to do anything really. And, um, hold on, hold, hold on one second. Let's, let's pick yeah. back up there in a second. But, um, what help me understand the connection between your dad having a ADD and not being able to bring himself to to visit your your mom in well, the hospital. Well, this is this is something that's not well known about ADHD, but it, it's a huge part of it, which is emotional dysregulation. It's not just the about the inability to to focus; it's in the inability to regulate your attention and also your emotions. And so he felt very strongly and didn't know how to handle what he was feeling. He didn't have the emotional maturity to be able to process it and deal with it and be there for her. So he was he was probably raised in emotional poverty where feelings weren't talked about or they were considered weak or what what was it that that he didn't have the script to kind of process what he was feeling and yeah, I think that was part of it for sure. My dad was actually a really sensitive artist type, but had kind of had that <laughs> beaten out of him by his parents. Um, his parents were very anti-mental health, anti-psychiatry, um, anti-anything. It's, you know, this is the way that God made you. And, and if you don't shape up and do what you're supposed to do, it's your fault. It's a willpower issue. Uh, so, yeah, my dad did not have any sort of script, any sort of model for, oh, okay, this is how you handle difficult feelings to begin with, and then you add emotional dysregulation and, and uh, all that fun stuff that comes with ADHD on top of it. And it was, he was a child, you know, he didn't know, he didn't know how to deal with it. He didn't know how to process it. And I was angry at him for a long time because my mom was already handicapped. She had already been born with one leg shorter than the other. And now her back is broken and she's, she's hurting and she's in pain. And my mom is the most neurotypical person that I know, so she's more capable than any of us, <laughs> or probably all of us put together. But she was doing all of this, raising kids and going and going to work and um, taking care of the house with a broken back and by herself. My dad couldn't help. Oh, I see. I thought you meant that he didn't visit her when she was in the hospital. Oh, he didn't. He didn't. Oh, okay. um, I don't think that he could handle it emotionally. I think he was in denial. I think that he. He felt like, and I think I think a lot of the men at the time, and maybe still, feel like if I can't fix it, I can't help. Mm. And my mom was like, "I just need you to come," but I don't think my dad could handle. That was like the first time that she, something was broken that he could not fix. She expressed that uh, yeah. to him. She did. Um, she tried to, but my mom is also she's she's very much a peacekeeper, and so she she didn't really stand up for what she needed. At the time, and so I, I don't, I don't think that she asked for what she needed as strongly as she could have. Gotcha. It was just, it was an interesting, it was an interesting dynamic. Um, and you watched this. I did, and I felt my own guilt because I was supposed to be in that car. I was supposed to go to the party that my mom was going to. Um, it was a teacher's, it was a teacher's thing, and. I, I was selfish and wanted to go bowling with my friends instead. And I remember feeling like 
horrible because I should have been in that car. I don't know how it would have helped things if I had been and had also gotten hurt. But I remember having a lot of feelings to process about it. And it, it was just a lot at once. Um, and it overwhelmed it overwhelmed my system. From, from what I understand um, from talking to therapists is that survivor guilt or I should have been there guilt is our brain's way of trying to exert some type of control over the situation so that we don't have to look at the truth that the world can be so unsafe and unpredictable sometimes. That's that's what I'm told, and it makes sense to me. That makes a lot of it's sense. It's our way to me. of ordering, you know, bringing some type of order or sense into things that we yeah. can't file away as. Oh, here's the reason. Yeah, I mean that makes sense, and it's probably why my dad couldn't show up for her too, because it was something he couldn't control. Like if he if he showed up and she was hurting, she couldn't do anything about it. I remember there would be times when she would complain about her pain, and he wouldn't want to hear it. Because he didn't know how to deal with it. He couldn't fix it. So it was like, why, you know, he didn't understand that just being there, just hearing her, just holding her hand would have made such a difference. Um, Because, well, that's not, you know, that's not real fixing. You know, that's just mental whatever. That's, you know, we all know is just (laughs) voodoo, right? Like just anything that's happening in the mind, that's not real. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing how we believe we believe that uh, it took me about 15 years into my uh, former marriage to realize that my wife didn't want me to fix her problems. She just wanted to be heard. Right. Yeah, it's it's hard. And I, I blame it on school. I blame it on school because in school, if you're given a problem, you're expected to solve it. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. And I think a, a lack of parenting, the the you know, multi-generational carrying on of that. And I don't, I don't blame the parents personally for that. I, I, I think that's the root of it because, um, it would be great if they taught that in, in schools, but ultimately, ideally, wouldn't it be great if parents emotionally educated their, their children, but they can't teach what they don't know. That's exactly it. I think most parents do try to emotionally educate their children with how they have learned to handle emotion. And so don't cry. Don't be weak. Yeah. 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 You you teach what you know. Yeah. So uh, where where did we uh, leave off then? So you things started to fall apart. Yeah, things started to fall apart. So now it wasn't just me leaving my jacket at school. It was me not making it to class or not understanding what class I was supposed to be in and the, the social issues I'd already had with my peers. Uh, it was, you know, I couldn't just hide behind books all the time anymore. Like it was starting to, you know, you go through puberty and you're like, I like boys now and like I want friends and um, trying to navigate that. And Any particular stories that you remember that you can share um, about that um, or moments from the past that we talked about? Yeah, I think... I think going through puberty, right when I switched schools, right when all of this was happening and suddenly, you know, I get I have boobs and boys find me attractive, it it gave me the opportunity to be socially accepted in a way that I had not been before because you know, girls can be pretty mean and and there's an emotional immaturity I, I talked about before with ADHD where um the the prefrontal cortex develops more slowly. You're you're kind of a few years behind in executive function, and including emotional 
um, regulation when you have ADHD. And so I didn't really fit in with my peers, but boys didn't care if, if I fit in, right? They're like, you have boobs and you're a girl and you're pretty. So I found a kind of social acceptance there. And I found a kind of uh, love and stability that I wasn't able to get at home at that time because my mom was struggling and my dad was checked out and um, I was the oldest. Uh, so I had younger siblings, but they couldn't really be there for me and they ended up having their own issues. Um, so I think I developed a kind of a love addiction for a while where it was like, well, this is where I can find safety and stability. Validation. And- I just have to give up my um, feelings about what I want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I got really good at knowing what other people wanted and being able to give it to them. And uh, I turned into a little bit of a heartbreaker because I was basically going from one life raft to the next and uh, one relationship to the next. And I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that I needed love. I needed safety. I needed security. And I would take it wherever I could get it. I, I remember sitting in a pep rally once in eighth grade and like there was a boy next to me. I didn't really think like, do I like this boy? Do I like I want to be with this boy? I just remembered going, I need somebody to hold my hand. And so I reached over and held his hand. And at the time, I didn't have the emotional maturity to like realize, oh, I'm going to have to hurt his feelings later if I'm not actually interested in this as a thing. I, I just knew that I needed it to survive, I think. And I, I was just all over the place. I, I remember going home and telling my mom I hated her and I wish she had died in the accident. I remember having no idea how to cope. And I was so out of control. And I was before this, I was the good girl, right? I, you know, all in elementary school, I was getting, I was getting straight A's and and doing well. And again, the ADHD was clearly there. I I could not remember anything. I was constantly dirty. I did not fit in socially. Um, I was really messy. I got I got called messy Jesse in kindergarten, and that name stuck. And it wasn't until I grew up that my mom was like, you know, I gave you that nickname. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> mom. <laughs> So the ADHD was there, but it wasn't impairing me the way that it was in in middle school, and that's um, that's when I actually got diagnosed. Uh, and it wasn't even it wasn't even that teachers caught me because I'm still a gifted girl, and at the time that wasn't really a, a red flag for ADHD. It was more like, oh, she's you know hormones and girl. Um, but my cousin was diagnosed, and he was the you know the stereotypical like bouncing off the walls, troublemaking boy. And when he got diagnosed, his doctor looked at my aunt and said, what about you? And she was like, what about me? And he tested her too. And she had ADHD as well. I mean, she was diagnosed with ADD at the time. Terms changed. But um, my mom looked at me and she was like, you're a lot like your aunt. We should get you tested too. And so she took me and my younger brother to get tested. And the first doctor we went to said, well, how, how are her grades? You know, in elementary school, how did she do? And my mom handed him my A, A, A report cards and he's like, she's fine. Like, you don't need to worry about her. And my mom's like, thank you for your opinion. We're going to go see a specialist, which she did to her credit, because that could have been the end of it. I was, I'm was i so grateful that my mom took that extra step and, and took me to get diagnosed, because I I went to get diagnosed, went through a ton of testing. Uh, I don't even remember all of it, but I remember it was extensive. And at the end, yeah, sure enough, I, I was diagnosed with, at the time, ADD, which is now my diagnosis is ADHD combined type, which is... Uh, yeah, that's the whole thing. But um, but I'll was... elaborate on that. Okay, so there's there's still sometimes used ADD versus ADHD, and um, there's even a, a rivalry sometimes. Like, oh, you know, why do people keep talking about ADHD? I have ADD. I was actually diagnosed with ADD, even though my show is called How to ADHD, because the terminology they're starting to understand that these are all 
the same disorder. It's not two different disorders. It's different presentations of the same thing. I see. And so there are now three different presentations. One is ADHD primarily inattentive, which is what we used to call ADD. Um, then there's ADHD primarily hyperactivity, impulsivity, which is you know the, the what we think of when we think of ADHD, kids bouncing off the walls and getting into trouble. And then there's the combined type, which is actually it means you qualify for for both basically. Like I have the inattentive and the hyperactive impulsive symptoms enough to qualify for both, and so I'm considered combined type. And that's actually most people with ADHD. So um, and the ADHD also includes the ability to hyperfocus to the detriment of anything going on around you. That's a, that's very well put. That's exactly it. It's it's a double edged sword. You do have this incredible ability to like zone in and just hyperfocus and do something for hours and hours and hours. And not everybody understands that. So it's like when you see your kid like zoning into a video game for twelve hours and then can't sit there for five minutes yes. doing their homework. You're like, my kid doesn't have ADHD. He just doesn't like doing homework. Right. Not necessarily because that. Video game is giving your kid's brain what it needs to be able to focus, and that homework is not. Yes. So it's it's yes, you'd probably rather be playing video games anyway. But the the difference with ADHD is you know that homework is important, and you sit down and you try and make your brain focus on it, and your brain is like, nope. It's like a feral puppy. <laughs> like it is just not cooperating, no matter how badly you know that you need to get this done, because the ADHD brain does not care about important. That is not one of the markers for, like, this should get done. It just wants stimulation that releases happy chemicals or what? Yeah, it needs stimulation because the ADHD brain is chronically under-aroused. So the ADHD brain needs stimulation, and it's going to get it wherever it can. So that can be in uh, an addiction. It can be in, like, tons of coffee. It can be in the form of medication that's supervised by a doctor. Uh, But your brain needs stimulation. It's going to get it somehow. And some ways are more dangerous than others. You know, there's Mm -hmm. people who, like, speed... Speed demons on the highway. Those are, <laughs> I don't want to call anybody out, but those are probably ADHD brains trying to get the, the, the neurotransmitters and yeah, the, yeah, that their brain needs to be able to function. Yeah. Running late is another way to get that stimulation. Those, mm-hmm. you know, procrastinating, waiting till the last second when you've got that pressure of the deadline. It's, it's another way to get the, the stimulation that your brain needs to be able to kick into gear and do what you need to do. Yeah. I, I wonder about two people that seek chaotic relationships because healthy relationships, uh, just bore bore yeah. them. Yeah. Um, as you were sharing, you know, the uh, hyper-focus and then the scattered focus, I was just thinking of two classic examples that I've done many times is um, I would be writing something that I was really interested in. And my wife, now ex-wife, would say, uh, I'm going to the grocery store. And I would just kind of very faintly register it and i would look up 45 minutes later and say where is where's my wife (laughs) or you know four hours had passed and she was at work and i didn't even know where she was and then the other thing is so many times i will forget my uh hockey equipment either bringing it like i've gone to the rink without my equipment or my sticks (laughs) driven 15 minutes go to take it out of the car and i'm like where the fuck was was my brain or leave my sticks at the rink so many times and it's embarrassing because you feel um like such a space cadet if mm-hmm. it, it, i don't know if dumb is the right word but you just feel different in a 
bad way. Yeah, there's a lot of shame, and I think that can be one of the most debilitating aspects of ADHD. Um, we did a we did a video for the channel about um, we where Edward animated metaphors. Edward is her husband, Edward. who is sitting here with us, as well as their dog Chloe, who is adorable and sitting in Jessica's lap. <laughs> So we did this. Yeah, we, Chloe is adorable. Um, so it, it is. It's There's a lot of shame behind it. You can feel like the smartest, stupidest, most motivated, laziest person in the room all oh at the same time. God, what a fantastic sentence. That was, I bet you so many people listening right now went, oh, my God, that's me. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really it's really easy to take on that shame because how can you argue when you're sitting on the couch playing video games and you're supposed to have gotten up and helped around the house or or finished your homework by now? How can you argue with somebody that calls you lazy? My you don't you don't know. You don't understand what's going on with your brain and that you're having trouble with executive function. You don't understand that you're having trouble regulating your attention and breaking your focus from this so that you can transfer it to something else. You just think I am stupid. I am lazy. I am not trying hard enough. And it's so easy to internalize that and treat it as a personal character defect and agree with the rest of the world that it is. And it's not until you really research ADHD and understand it that you that you get it. Because even living with an ADHD brain, I had a lot of self-judgment. I was like, okay, I have trouble focusing, but like everything else is my fault, right? right. The fact that I lose things constantly and and the unfinished projects. Oh God, so many on so many unfinished projects. Oh, yeah. But that's another. It's an executive function, the ability to to sustain effort toward a goal. That that's something that's impaired in the ADHD brain. But unless you know that, you feel like a flake. Yes, you feel like you. There's just something wrong with you. And the the, the thing that I think is important to be kind to yourself about is to, instead of saying I'm lazy, look at it in terms of what you're passionate about and try to harness that into a way that makes your life better. Like you may be passionate about video games, which aren't necessarily productive for your life moving forward. They're certainly a great way to blow off steam. But, you know, if you can find something in addition that you're passionate about, you know, maybe a skill that you can take out into the real world, then I think a lot of people will find that they're not lazy. They just need passion to to be motivated. And at least for me, that that has been one of the things that that has helped me uh, stop calling myself lazy for the most part, but it's still it's still there. It's still a shaming experience to look at something that you've been trying to get to for two years and it's just like a crime scene in your backyard <laughs> just saying you are you are the worst yeah i can feel that way but you're completely right like i think that one of the most critical things for our brains is that we have to find something that engages it because that's that's what matters it's i have never met anybody as hardworking as somebody with adhd who's engaged by what they're doing mm -hmm. like i'm talking you know 16 hour shifts like it like once you find the thing that turns your brain on you will keep going and keep working at it and keep trying and i mean look at einstein he was like a terrible student he yeah. was bored yeah. by it and then he found what he wanted and he had bad hair I think that's what we should take from it. Self-care is an issue for people with ADHD. It's legitimately an issue. Standing standing in front of the mirror and brushing your teeth for two minutes is one of the most god-awful boring tasks in the world. <laughs> brushing your hair? Are you kidding me? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you're not wrong. 
uh, but yeah, letting, letting go of the shame can be really hard. Um, and I think that the way to do it, there's a couple ways that really help, which is to, to educate yourself about mm-hmm. it. And I, I've kind of externalized it. I'm like, okay, there's me and what I want. And then there's like what my brain wants. And so sometimes there's a negotiation process and what my brain needs. So I might be like, okay, I want to accomplish this project. I want to accomplish this project. If it's not happening, okay, what, what does my brain need that I'm not giving it? You know, it, it's there are accommodations that you can give it, like like a ramp into a building. You don't keep telling the person in a wheelchair to go up the stairs. That's ridiculous. Um, you you build a ramp, and so you can build ramps for your brain in a sense. Like if there's, uh, you know, if there's a, a project and and you know what you need to do next, but you're not doing it, like create a half step. You know, I I need to program my day into my calendar, and I'm not doing it. Okay, well, what's the half step? Maybe just like write down on a piece of paper what you think you might need to do today, and then from there you can put it into your calendar. There's there's so many tricks and hacks and and tips and strategies that are available um, that that I put on my channel. And like <laughs> I've been doing it for two and a half years, and I am not close to to done talking about all the ways that we can learn to work with our brains so that we can reach that potential everybody kept telling us about. Uh, yeah, you mu- must be doing something right because you have a quarter of a million subscribers on your YouTube channel. Um, that's amazing. Thanks. That's amazing. It's Do pretty you- cool because it started out as a personal project. It started out like I was 32 years old. I was divorced. I had ruined my credit. I'd gone through like 15 jobs. I was going nowhere with my life. And I was like, okay, I'm doing something wrong because I was trying so hard. And that's what people don't see necessarily uh, with, you know, from the outside is how hard you're trying. Like, I would be like, I don't have time to hang out with friends. I have to, you know, I have to work. Um, But I was getting nowhere. And so I was like, okay, maybe if I put as much effort into figuring out why I'm not getting anywhere as I do into trying to get somewhere, like maybe that will help because clearly what I'm doing is not working. And it was kind of magical. Like the more I learned about my brain, the more I learned to work with my brain, the more I was able to accomplish the things that I wanted to accomplish. And then putting these videos up on YouTube and getting the feedback every week, that also put me in a position where my job was giving my brain what it needed. I was getting the the instant feedback. There were deadlines that were frequent. There were um, there was something different to work on every week. And you were passionate about it. Yeah, and I was passionate about it. And I don't know if passion's enough because I was passionate about acting, but you know what I did not like doing? Memorizing lines. Hated it. You know I was not good at doing? Going into a, an audition room and, and looking around at all the other beautiful skinny girls and thinking, I belong here. I can do this. Like I had such bad self-esteem that I would walk into the room after having worked on something for two days and bought a new outfit for it and like gone to coaching and paid $60 and gone, this is my part. I got this. I'd walk into the room and instantly be like, it's not mine. Instantly deflated, instantly defeated. Um, it was not the right career for me, even though I loved it because the the effort that you have to put in is like 5% acting and like 95% waiting around. Like you're waiting in the waiting yes. room, you're waiting tables. And the business um, and <laughs> politics and, and all the other yeah. crap. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, it can be very superficial. And um, there, are, there are times when it's like, oh, it's good, meaningful work but most of it is like okay you have to look a certain way you have to act a certain way you have to you have to fit into the box that somebody's trying to put you in in the script and that's not something i've ever been good at i've never fit into a box so uh, i even though i was passionate about it it's not where my effort was and so one of the best things i've ever heard is don't follow your passion follow your effort 
what do you like to do? I like to learn. I like to read. I like to, to make sense of the world around me. I like to, to connect with people on an, on a very honest, authentic level. I like, I don't like, I don't like bullshit. I don't like small talk. I don't want to talk about the weather. I want to talk about like your childhood scars, <laughs> you know? My God, it's, it, I could not agree more. It's, it, it is draining to hide your authentic self. Yeah. And it is so energizing to embrace your authentic self. And if there's one thing that parents can do that can really be a gift to your kid, it's to encourage who they are instead of trying to mold them who you think they need to be to be safe in the world. And I know that there are going to be parents that will have kids that are unrealistic that may say, you know, I want to be a professional weed smoker slash uh, video gamer. And I don't know what you do in that that case. Um, but I do know that there are so many people in careers that they are miserable in yeah. because they just listen to parents that said, you have to, you have to do this and as many mistakes as my parents made i am so grateful that they told me do what you are interested in and the money will follow it's true and it's never never true more than it is for for people with neurodivergent brains because our 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 brains have to literally have to be engaged in the work that we're doing in order to perform up to our potential. I don't think there's really an alternative. And that doesn't mean that you can't find things that excite your brain about any job. I think that right. you can, but, um, but trying to do like the safe thing, it, it's not inspiring. It doesn't turn your brain on. And so you're not going to actually end up being safe. You're going to end up you know, struggling to, to live up to like the basic level and honestly not feeling good about yourself. If if you go for a job where you're like, okay, all I have to do is show up on time and you can't show up on time. How are you going to feel about yourself? Whereas if you're like, I, you know, I, I started the YouTube channel going, I'm going to get a million subscribers in a year. And like, what's that ridiculous? Yes, it was. But you know what? It drove me. It motivated me. And, and it, I, I didn't accomplish a million subscribers in a year, but what I did accomplish was incredible. And I think that, that, Helping your kids follow the direction of where where they want to go is is really important. And there's a there's a cool story I heard on a panel that I did for an autism conference, and this um, this autistic man uh, said that his mom um, he when he told her what he wanted to do when he grew up, she didn't laugh at him. She said, "Okay, this is what you need to do. It. You know what he wanted to do? Hmm. He wanted to be an accountant for George Lucas." That was all he wanted in life. Wow. And she didn't say, uh, I'm sure he already has accountants. Like, right. that's impossible. She was like, okay, this is what you would have to do if you wanted to be an accountant for George Lucas. You know, it's going to take a lot of school. If you're going to be able to do that, you're going to need to make sure that you get your accommodations. You're going to need to do this. You're going to need to do that. And he was so driven to be this accountant for George Lucas that he did all the things. It was, you know, it, it captured his interest. And um, we're very interest-based learners. There's nothing we can't do if we're interested in it. And so it, it helped him advance a lot. And he's an accountant, and he got to be an accountant for Disney. So he's like, in a way, retroactively, I kind of did get to be an accountant for George Lucas, and he's so proud of it. Yeah, and it, you know, if you think about it, it's it doesn't matter ultimately whether or not you're going to meet that thing twenty years from now, because you may idea of it may change, but it starts you in the direction of passion, and exactly. that's the most important thing. Exactly. I have. I had no idea when I started this channel what it would have turned into. 
I just knew that I needed a place where I wouldn't lose the tools that I was learning. The information that I, that I was learning about my brain, I just needed a place to put it that I wouldn't lose it. And there was like only one place I knew that that would be. And that was YouTube. I was like, I know how to find YouTube. Yeah. That is the only place I know that I will not lose when I move. So. And, and, and if I can just interrupt for one second, I also yeah. want to say to, to, to people out there that are like, well, fuck you guys. I, you know, I have a dead end job. I, it, your passion doesn't have to be what you do professionally. You know, find something in your life that, you know, has you excited to get get out of bed because not everybody can do, you know, what they dream of doing. I think it's un, unrealistic to expect uh everybody to arrive there but certainly give it a shot if it's uh if it's possible i don't know now i feel like i'm uh, being a condescending asshole but no you're fine i mean it's it's worth mentioning but also you don't have to be a professional youtuber or an actor or you know a rock star to find ways that you can engage your brain on the job i personally i think that office jobs involving paperwork are probably not the best idea for ADHD brains. Like you're fighting an uphill battle at that point with the executive function deficits and having to sit still at a desk all day long and, and show up at a certain time. I'm not saying you can't do it, but I'm saying I don't think that's usually the best fit. And if personally, if I meet somebody who's like, I hate my job and I'm really struggling and like, I feel like I should be able to do this. I'm like, that's not what your brain is built for, like flat out. But I waited tables for, for 15 years and that was amazing for my brain. I got to move all the time. Everything's urgent. You don't have to take any work home with you and feel guilty about time all the stuff you didn't do Time flies by. Yeah. Flies by. Yeah. yeah. And there are a lot of jobs like that. Like anything, here's what the brain is good at, at focusing on. Um, anything that's like new or novel, anything that's like, so, so work that changes all the time is really good for us. Anything that, um, that's challenging, mm -hmm. you know, it, you might think like, oh, my kid has ADHD, like lower the expectations a bit. No, like if you raise that bar, like that's actually more engaging. Um, anything that's like, oh, what else? Uh, newer novel. Oh, of personal interest, right? We talked about that yes. already. Like what turns your brain on? Um, these are things that, that the ADHD brain is really good at. And then also things that are urgent. So, um, my dad was untreated, but you know what? He was really good at his job. He was an EMT paramedic, uh, firefighter. So yeah. he saved lives. He, he was really good in a crisis, which a lot of ADHDers are. If you figure out what your brain uh, does well and work with that instead of trying to focus on like getting better at the things it doesn't do well like you have to you have to manage impairments to a certain degree like i i am really bad at using a calendar but i still have to otherwise i wouldn't make it to <laughs> i wouldn't be talking to you guys right now because right. i wouldn't have remembered that this was today but um so you, you do have to manage the things you're not good at and, and learn to get like decent at them but that's not what you focus on you focus on what you're good at so so what i'm hearing is if you are working uh in an office pool quit that job and become a drug mule because it's very sure. exciting you'll be focused you'll be present you'll be in the moment you'll get to uh travel tunnels I have Which a family-friendly show. <laughs> it will be. That's amazing. You'll get to struggle with the feeling of <laughs> caring. All right, that's enough. That's enough. But I was going to go even darker. You know what you're right darker. about, though? You know what you're right about? You you can create your own job. You mm -hmm. can create your own job description. And even at a lot of companies, you can do that. You can say, okay, like... This part of my job I really struggle with, but like I know that you guys have this goal of of 
you know, maximizing your profits in this area and I have like an idea for a project for that. Mm-hmm. Can I take on that project? Right. Yeah. You don't have to like stick to, okay, this is your job description and fit inside this box. Like you can expand that box and you can, you can say, okay, I, you know, I, I do better if, um, if I can, show up an hour later or two hours later and then work late, I, I'm much more productive. And a lot of jobs, that's going to be okay. You can work with that. Um, there's a great resource for this. Uh, askjan.org. You can look up accommodations for executive function deficits and ADHD that can make you more productive at your job. And what boss is going to be like, nah, I want you to, I want you to struggle. Right. Like, I don't want you productive. Right. Yeah. Like, and most accommodations are really cheap or free. And a lot of them you can do yourself. So there's no reason to not find ways, whatever job you're in, to be able to work with your brain better. And here's the biggest hurdle you're going to face. People not taking ADHD seriously. Because mm-hmm. you run the gamut from it doesn't exist to... It's a crutch. You're you're yeah. blaming your laziness or your scatteredness on something by coddlers that have been assigned to you by coddlers. <laughs> No. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of stigma around that. There's a lot of shame and treatment and and I wasn't immune to it. And it's the weirdest thing. Like I would never I would never see somebody's broken leg and be like, this is how, you know, you should perform surgery on it. Like I would never tell somebody to like treat their own broken leg. But for some reason people do think it's perfectly fine to give medical advice on a mental condition that they can't possibly understand. Um, because they read an article about like, oh, scary side effect or whatever, without realizing like every doctor is taking into consideration the risks and the benefits. And people don't realize like not treating a medical condition also has side effects. Somebody who is not their doctor, you can't possibly know. You can't possibly know the extent of their impairments based on what you see when they show up you know, late to coffee or whatever. You have no idea what they what they struggle with on a daily basis. And so you cannot possibly say you shouldn't be taking medication. It, it, stimulant medication is the most effective treatment for ADHD. It's not everything. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I was still taking medication when I was busy ruining my life. You need skills. Pills don't teach skills. Um, it, but I, I liken it to glasses. Like if I'm going to drive, I'm going to put my glasses on because otherwise I'm going to be a really bad driver. Can I drive from here to work? Maybe. Like, can I do it without getting in an accident? Let's hope so. But it's going to be a lot harder. Um, But I still need to learn how to drive. I still need to learn the rules of the road. I still need to learn how to how to work my particular car. Just because I have glasses, it doesn't automatically qualify me to be able to drive. So I personally think you need both. You have to learn to understand your brain and you have to give your brain what it needs. Um, and for some people, that's medication. But I don't think it should be a last resort because a lot of times that medication can facilitate all of the other things you need to do to be able to take care of mm-hmm. your brain. So yoga is great. Eating right is great. I tried once going off my medication for two years because a boyfriend told me, oh, scary side effects, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, it could be bad for your heart. I had been on medication. You could find yourself with an asshole for a boyfriend. He was nice, though. He was so kind and concerned. And that's the thing that gets me. Like, he was an asshole. Let's not (laughs) lose words. No, but people, people are so concerned. And so they read something and they're like, Oh my God, like, I care about you. You should go off your medication. And I did because he was smart and he was like becoming a physicist. And I was like, Oh, that's so much smarter than me, obviously. So I went off my medication that I'd been on for 10 years and had no side effects, by the way. Like, he was worried about my heart. I had low blood pressure. There was absolutely no reason to go off my meds. No, no negative side effects. I went off my meds, like gained 30 pounds in three months, like lost a job, decided to go into stand-up comedy, which is, we all know, is a really wonderful. That's a, that's a, it is the cry for help that really <laughs> is, 
It is the last house on the block. And I'm glad, yeah. I, I'm glad I did it, but I did struggle for two years before finally admitting to myself that just because I can live without medication doesn't mean it makes sense for me. Right. Like, why would you not want to treat a medical condition with something that's effective just so you can prove that you did it? Right. I mean... It's, it's ego and pride, and yeah. that is... I've seen people destroy their lives. I have a friend. She was a guest on this podcast who is probably on the streets right now. I had to cut contact with her because she has um, uh, bipolar with psychosis and she will not take meds. And she thinks the FBI is after her and she has lost jobs, lost family, because it is just too draining to be around her. And I had to lovingly tell her, I love you, but I can't watch you destroy yourself. And it's, she's, she's just... That's really tough. It's tough. And I say what you say all the time. What are the side effects of not being yeah. Yeah. On, on meds? And I'm not – I try really hard to kind of stay somewhat neutral. Like I never tell anybody they should take medication because I don't know their situation. I don't know their brain. No. The meds don't work for everybody. Sometimes the side effects do outweigh the benefits for people. But if they work for you and, and you're not dealing with horrible negative side effects and you're able to live a more productive life – I don't think I don't think anybody should shame you for that. I don't think anybody should make you feel bad for quote taking the easy way out. Because you know what? That's what we're supposed to do as humans. Like this is controversial, but like why do we use the door instead of climbing a window when we get home? Well, I take the window, but that's oh. just I like I like to look good. <laughs> but like if it's effective and there's no reason not to, like why would you not do and that? And it's not cheating, it's just bringing us up to the starting line. You know, that's yeah. that's how I feel. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and it's like if you have a B12 deficiency, taking B12. Like if you don't have a B12 deficiency and you take a bunch of extra B12, it might make you feel like, oh, I'm doing something, you know, that's going to make me better. But like really, it's not going to have a huge impact. But if you have a deficit of neurotransmitters and you take something that will give you a boost in neurotransmitters, you're not getting an advantage. You're giving your brain the basic level of stimulation all brains need. That <laughs> This is how I explain it. Because I, I used to feel like I was cheating. I used to feel like, God, I should be able to do this without it. Um but if it's cheating, it's like everybody's cheating. Like neurotypicals are cheating. Neurotypicals have enough dopamine in their brains to be able to focus on a task that's boring because they know what's important and it needs to get done. The only difference between someone who's neurotypical and me is they don't have to go get new cheat codes every week mm -hmm. or every month. You know, I have to go to the doctor every month, which, by the way, anybody who – let me go on a rant for a second. Anybody who wants to say that taking medication or giving your child medication is the easy way out <laughs> does Do not understand what goes into getting medication. Yes. Like, deal with to, insurance companies. Oh, deal God. with uh, doctors and pharmacies. Yeah, and, and because it's locked down, because it's a Schedule II substance, I have to go to the doctor every month, every month. And I've been, I've been on stimulant medication, except for those two years, like 20 years. And so every month I have to go, yes, I still have ADHD. Yes, the, the medication still works for me. Same dose, um, same medication for years. And then get a prescription and take it to a pharmacy that may not have it in stock. And if that happens, I either don't get my medication or I have to drive to another pharmacy to ask if they have it because they can't even call. My pharmacist can't even call another pharmacy and say, do, wow. do you have this in stock? Because it's such a, you know, it's a Schedule II substance. If I forget my ID, I'm not getting my medication. If my doctor dated my prescription wrong that day, I'm not getting my medication. Mm -hmm. If like one time I showed up and my insurance was like, no, yeah, I was, I was on a new insurance. And they were like, oh, that, that medication isn't pres prescribed or approved for kids over 18. 
And I was like, I've been taking it for years. And so mm-hmm. I had to fight my insurance company. And paperwork and appointments and all of this is yeah. not something that comes naturally to the ADHD brain. It is very difficult. And even parents who are, are doing this for their children, a lot of them also have ADHD. A lot of them are also struggling. And even the ones who aren't never make this decision lightly. Nobody is ever like, ah, oh, my kid's acting up. Let me pop a pill in them. Like, if that's happening, that shouldn't be. But most parents, I hear from parents all the time that email me and they're like, I've tried everything. Mm-hmm. Everything I've done, you know, spent thousands of dollars on neurofeedback and I've done this vitamin and that diet and, you know, daily exercise and, and I've tried all of these things, tutoring. And I, I just, what do I do? Because I don't want to put my kid on medication and it breaks my heart because again, there are side effects of not treating ADHD, but there's also an exhaustion that comes as the person with ADHD when you can't do what everybody wants you to do and do it without the meds mm-hmm. when that's not enough. And you feel like a failure because of it. It's heartbreaking. And you get you get exhausted. You get exhausted from trying. I I, I couldn't agree more. And um I resisted uh taking Adderall because um when my psychiatrist, you know, being in recovery, um when my psychiatrist recommended it. I said, no, uh, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I, I don't want to. And he said, uh, you know, just want to let you know that it can be very effective for people with treatment-resistant depression, which is what I have. Mm. And we have tried every med under the sun. And, you know, it would get me about 75% there. But still, every day, 4 o'clock, even if I got up at noon, I would have to go back to bed because the world just felt like too much. Yeah. And then uh, I met somebody who was also sober, who said it helped them with their treatment-resistant depression and they had no desire to abuse it. And so I decided to to try it. And it was the game changer. And I don't crawl back into bed at 4 o'clock anymore. And um, it, I don't care what anybody thinks about, oh, are you sober or not? I know that I'm not doing it to get high. I don't get high from it. It just helps me feel normal. I don't abuse it. And the other thing I wanted to mention about it is the um, insurance that I have, I'm able to use a mail order pharmacy that sends me three months at a time. And so I don't have to go to a pharmacy. I just have to call my psychiatrist and say, uh, you know, the three months is almost up and they call it in. And it gets mailed to me. We're gonna have to talk. So after this, we'll I talk. Didn't know that was an option. We'll talk after after we're done. <laughs> that's awesome. Here, but um, but that's uh, I mean that's that's great. And it, I'm I'm glad I'm glad that you finally decided to go ahead and try something because I I come from a 12 step background too, and it can be really hard to to be like okay, but like am I gonna still be welcome? Like am I actually you know sober that kind of thing? And it's like. It, it is not getting high. Like if you're not, if you're taking the the prescribed dose of the medication, yeah, I, I tell people it doesn't feel like I'm high or some other person or even really getting an advantage. It feels like myself without a 30 pound weight attached. Yes, that's a great you way. Know? That's like, a great way to put it. I can yes. be the level of productive that I imagine people are when they have their cup of coffee in the mm-hmm. morning. You know, that's about what it feels like to me. Yeah. Like I'm myself, but you know, alert. I can, I can do this. I, I feel, got this. feel more capable yeah. of meeting meeting life. Uh, anything else you'd like to share before we uh, wrap up? Yeah. So 
this is a big thing that um, there's a couple big things that I'm working on right now. Um, one is um, finding peer support because again, I said one thing is is educating yourself about your brain and how it, how it works, and that can help with a lot of the stigma. But the other thing that can really help is connecting with other people who are struggling with what you're struggling with. So true. And so, so we have, you know, we found that that doing the channel, like I thought the biggest thing that I had to offer was the tools. But the truth is, like, you can Google the tools. Like, you can look them up online. It's community. They're great it's, resources. Yeah. It's the community. Yeah it's, yeah, it's connecting with other people who are struggling with what you're struggling with and being able to talk about it openly without explaining or defending yourself yes. or feeling guilty or shameful for what you're struggling with. When somebody else laughs and says, yeah, me too, it's incredible. So we're actually working on um, bringing to the to the valley first, the, the San Fernando Valley here, um, an in-person ADHD support group called ADHD Space. And we're partnering up with Chad to do that because I want to take what what is available online with my channel and I want to put that in an, in an in-person environment. Um, I've seen how helpful peer support groups can be, and I think that yeah. adults with ADHD could use that. That's fantastic. And we'll put a link up um, when when we post your episode. Thank you. And a link up to all your stuff, your channel and anything else that uh, that you want. And people can follow you on Twitter at? Oh, at HowToADHD. Awesome. Anything else? Yeah. The, the thing... The other thing that perpetuates the other thing that perpetuates stigma for for people with ADHD is the articles that get passed around. Like I don't know how often you get somebody sharing an article on Facebook, like "Oh, see, ADHD doesn't really exist." Yeah. You know, the the father of ADHD said so. We at this point know so much about ADHD. There are so many research studies done on ADHD and the impairments associated with it, and the the impacts of medication and the impacts of you know exercise and like all these different things that. You don't need to trust a single article. And anytime there's anything that you see where it's like this one expert says or this mm -hmm. one research study suggests, that does not invalidate everything else that we know. Right. And it's never black and white. It's never black and white. If you feel like you understand ADHD or what somebody should or shouldn't do to mm -hmm. treat it from one article, that article has done a very good job of convincing you of something. But chances are they're trying to sell you something. Yes. Yes, they're, they're trying to make a name for themselves very, yeah. very often. Yeah. They're trying to sell a book. They're trying to sell uh, a natural supplement. They're trying to sell uh, an article. You know, they just want an article to, to do well and go viral so they can keep their job as a journalist, whatever yes. it is. Right. They're, they're trying to uh, defend their half-assed thesis yeah. <laughs> that they had to come up with. Yeah. But ADHD is a very, very complicated disorder. There's a, a lot of comorbidities that come with it. It can, it can lead to or include anxiety, depression. It's, it's serious. It's a lot more serious than, than society gives it credit for it. And I had no idea. I cried some days looking through the, the research and statistics that I was finding about ADHD because I thought it was just me. Yeah. But it impacts every aspect of your life. And anybody, anybody that's tempted to diminish it or turn it into a joke, please don't. Yeah. Agreed. I'm so tempted to make a joke right Make now. a joke. Make a joke. <laughs> we can make jokes. We, have we can it. make jokes. It's okay. <laughs> uh, well, Jessica, thank you uh, so much. I uh, really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing all that with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so great talking with you. It was great talking to her. And fittingly, she left her purse. <laughs> oh, when I realized that she had left her purse, I was like, "This the universe is awesome. The universe is just awesome. 
before I take it out with some surveys, I want to uh, tell you guys about our uh, sponsor, Blinkist. Um, if you're like me, there's way more books than you're ever going to be able to read and just not enough time to uh, to get to them. But our sponsor, Blinkist, uh, has a way to solve this problem. It's the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements, blinks, as they call them. So you can read or listen to them and expand your knowledge all in under 15 minutes, anywhere, anytime from your phone. And uh, I have uh, checked it out, and I did one uh, that w- was a, a blink version of Walter Isaacson's uh, a book on Leonardo da Vinci, and it was really, really cool. And some ones that I recommend you check out um, are the Blinkist uh, versions of Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, these are both books on um, uh, mindfulness. And the other one is Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. Those are two huge, really, really helpful books. Um, so right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for you guys. Go to Blinkist dot com slash mental to start your free seven day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B L I N K I S T. Blinkist dot com slash mental to start your free seven day trial. Blinkist dot com slash mental. All right, let's get to some surveys. This is uh, struggle in a sentence. Madwella shares about her anxiety. What my coworker said. Hey, everyone's talking about the great work you're doing. What I heard? Hey, everyone's talking about you. Awesome. Marco shares a happy moment with us. He writes, uh, I was never close to my dad. That's mainly because when we went, when we, oh, there's a typo in there. When we spent every other weekend together, my three half-siblings were also around. In second grade, there was a day when school was canceled and I had to hang out with my dad since he worked nights. We ended up at the arcade where I quickly started playing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. I was never good at video games and this one seemed extra tough. When my turtle would die, the insert coin to continue message would pop up and every time I turned around, my dad had a quarter in in my hand. They just kept coming until miraculously, I beat the entire game. He never told me it was costing too much or taking too much time. He just let me be a kid. That's so awesome. That's so great when you just feel seen and encouraged by a parent and it's and it's not it's not about them. Those are like I think so much more important than the, you know, the expensive gifts or, you know, the other stuff. Any suggestions to make the podcast better? Clone Paul so he has more time to get stuff done. I am actually Paul's clone. He is still in Croatia. Um, And I think some people are onto me because I said that I liked frosted Pop-Tarts. And uh, I guess these people, that's not good. They said, that's odd. And then they called the police. This is a portion of a shame and secrets survey, and it's filled out by a woman who calls herself, uh, I need I need a social worker. 
And she came out of a relationship with a really, really uh, abusive boyfriend. A sadistic, I think, would actually be a, a word. Um, and there's this sweet moment uh, in answer to the question, any positive experience uh, experiences with the person who abused you. She writes, uh, Mostly I remember his two nieces, five and seven years old, who became the little sisters I never had. I got the opportunity to explain breakups to them. I explained we weren't as close as we had been. Like when they lose a friend, but you usually don't become friends again, and it makes you sad for a while. I asked if they had had that happen. They both said yes, and that it made them sad too. I explained that eventually we find new boyfriends and girlfriends, just like they have found new friends. They said they hated him for hurting me because they they like me, and he isn't nice to them. I told them, even though I was sad, I don't hate him, and I don't want them to hate him either. Yes, he is mean sometimes, but he can also be nice. He teaches you skills and keeps you safe, um, and that's something to love him for, even if they are angry at him. I don't. She didn't mention what kind of skills. I hopefully it's not handling somebody who's abusive. Um, we decided together they shouldn't hate him because sometimes breakups are good, and it lets you make new and better friends. Later, the family had a water balloon fight, and I remember the girls telling me they loved me and would be on my team, but they wouldn't hurt him with balloons because that would be mean, and they still loved him also. I was so proud of them. I was proud of myself. I got the opportunity to share love even when the instinct was disdain. Uh, I'm, I'm saddened, confused, but oddly comforted. Um, and uh, she says that her therapist uh, helped her with this one over a year's worth of time. Yeah, that's that's some complicated shit, and I'm not surprised it, it took a while. Uh, it sounds like you got a uh, a keeper for uh, for a therapist. Um, and then uh, in another part of the survey, she shared uh, because of the abuse that she experienced, um, she has an aversion to uh, performing oral sex, and she hasn't. Um, she's with a new boyfriend and she hasn't um, mentioned why um, she doesn't want to do that. And not that she has to, but um, uh, she's afraid to share why. And I think if this is going to be a long-term relationship with, with this guy, that would be an opportunity to let him in. Um and to share that part of you because that part of you deserves love as well. That that wounded part of you. That's that's not a part that uh, you should worry about him disdaining or blaming you for. Because if he does, that guy's you know to use the phrase again. That guy is not a keeper. So um, I think talking with your therapist about that might be good. Just a thought. This is a happy moment. <laughs> filled out by a woman who calls herself I love my cunt not my cunt Mike Hunt the old joke uh, again like Farty McFly you made me laugh despite my better instinct um, in her happy moment uh, October uh, 13 through 22 is a hard time for me every year um, in that nine day span there are anniversaries of both grandfather's deaths, 
uh, one of their birthdays and a deceased grandmother's birthday. Needless to say, I dread mid-October. I recently started dating someone and I'm greatly enjoying all of the things that come with something new, including his desire to put a smile on my face at whatever cost. Um, during that rough week and a half, he saw a social media post I made referencing my cousin who lives in another country. How long it's been since I've seen her, how long it'll be before she's home again, jokingly begging for a loan for a couple grand for the flight, etc. It came up in conversation and he said he'd been planning to message her to find out what it would take to get me to her country to see her. In addition to this, there's a possibility I'll be undergoing a major surgery in the next couple of months. This is the first time I've dated someone in about six years, so I'm used to being independent. I actually hate needing other 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 people, needing other people. I have a lot of anxiety about this potential surgery, and I really want him to be there. But of course, I don't want to ask him. When we were discussing the surgery recently, he said he was going to make sure to be holding my hand when I wake up. I burst into tears and said, I really want that, but I don't want to have to ask you. To which he replied, you shouldn't have to ask in a sort of duh reaction. For all I know, this relationship will go nowhere and we'll hate each other by this time next week. And I know they're just words, but I will forever remember the lengths he's willing and wants to go just to make me happy. Um, and I thought that was so weird because I had just experienced that, that same thing. And, um, you know, I just wanted to say whatever winds up happening in relationships down the road. The thing to keep in mind is that you and I are both probably going to die from complications. Uh, I'm assuming that, like me, you're having your surgery done at sea by pirates to save money. Or maybe you're not. Maybe you're lavishing money on yourself and having it done onshore. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, I thought there was something else. This is an awful moment filled out by Little Wanderer. And she writes, Growing up, we always ate dinner at the table as a family with the news playing in the background. Upon me making a comment regarding the whole Me Too movement, my dad completely lost his shit. Not exactly an unheard of behavior from him this time. Uh revolved around how fed up he was with constantly hearing about this, quote, shit. <laughs> he sounds like a treat. Upon my mom standing up for me and reminding him that no one is really too keen on hearing about his endless rambling about gas prices, he replied, at least we can do something about the price of gas. <sighs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, Ken filled out a, a struggle in a sentence survey, and uh, he's battling a lot of things. Depression, ADHD, anxiety, alcoholism, bulimia, compulsive eating, and, uh, and anger issues. And a snapshot from his life as he writes, dreading my daughter's upcoming wedding because I will have to put on my fake, quote, happy face and feeling guilty about it because I should be happy for her. Um, you know, to, to which I wondered, what is the reason that you're not happy for her? Is she marrying into an abusive relationship or are you just generally depressed? But I think a lot of people relate to the having to put a fake happy face on at, uh, at a wedding 
or really any kind of large event where, where uh, those of us with social anxiety and dread hate to venture and are usually surprised that it's not that bad. Is it ever as bad as we make it out to be in our mind? Aside from Disneyland? Uh, a woman who calls herself new to finding myself and learning about my mental health writes about having dyslexia. And she writes, As a kid, the school system took me out of my normal classes and put me in special needs. I constantly think I'm stupid and not worthy of having a good career or really anything. And then a snapshot snapshot from her life. My anxiety mixed with my dyslexia doesn't work well together. I can't enjoy simple things like playing board games with friends. When I was in school, I was constantly nervous that I would be called on. I am always anxious that I'm going to sound dumb, get a word wrong, and not be able to read something. Well, first of all, if you've listened to more than a few episodes of this podcast, you have heard me stumble through reading shit. Um, But the reason I wanted to read this is, you know, somebody that is functioning, that has the stuff that you have, anxiety and dyslexia, because you didn't say you can't play board games and you couldn't answer when you were called on, just that you're nervous about them. And so I just wanted to give you a counter perspective, which is that you're fucking awesome because you've been able to do these things despite having the setbacks you do. So if you think of it, it's like you're jogging. You've been jogging your whole life with a pack of people and you have weight on your legs. So you might look at that, that you're you're keeping up and you're a fucking badass. But like our friend on the Potomac, you're probably dehydrated, so stretch those calves out. I got a, an email from a guy named Connor um, who has been in therapy for five years for having borderline personality disorder and he's still having trouble with um, um, being what he says is super sensitive to other people's uh, criticism um, and then lashing out at them and saying mean or cruel things to them, which is um, can be really common with, with borderline personality disorder. But I wondered... Um, why his therapist hasn't suggested DBT yet, which is, I don't know why I pronounced it DBT, but uh, dialectical behavior therapy, which was invented by a woman who uh, has uh, borderline personality disorder. The woman's name is Marsha Linehan. And it's, I believe it comes in like a workbook form, but it is a set of tools uh, for communicating and dealing with uh, all of that those feelings that come up, I would imagine, triggered by the fight or flight part of our brain um, because of uh, past traumas. But uh, but don't quote me on that. But um, I wrote Connor back and s- said, you know, you might bring DBT up to your therapist, but I've got to assume it's a therapist that doesn't specialize in DBT because um, I don't know. I'm not a therapist. But I do look good in slacks. Actually, that's probably even less true than uh, if I said I was a therapist. Not playing hockey for probably going on like the third week right now just because of the torn tendon in my elbow. Um, I am just 
uh, ugh, <laughs> just, I'm almost looking like if you put like a, like a cake in, in the, or, or like a big thing of marzipan in the microwave and turned it on. That's what I'm, that's what my body is changing into. It just, it's lowering, it's expanding, uh, and it's, uh, it's not pretty. But I'm more than just my body, right? Tell that to my reflection. Let's see. You know, I was going to read a couple more surveys, but I, I'm going to take care of myself and um, wrap things up. Wrap things up here because uh, that's something I need to work on. Is my fear of letting other people down? Is I sometimes ignore what it is that I want, and then I'm a dick in some other way. Um, and so I don't want to be that guy. And I'm going to end with a happy moment that we have from a woman who calls herself, How Can I Help You? And she writes, I apologize as I am not much of a storyteller, but often hear your requests for more happy moments. About five months ago, I began interning at a youth services organization in Connecticut as required to finish my degree. I'm training to become a marriage and family therapist, which means that the client systems I work with uh, vary in composition. Some are families, individuals, couples. I've struggled with confidence, this is nothing new, which I feel very strongly when I am performing therapy on someone. I have the negative self-defeating thoughts, in parentheses, greatest hits from my family, which consume me more times than others. Some include, you don't know what you're talking about. How can someone so fucked up help other people? You are not good enough to do a job like this. Over the course of my master's program, a little more than three years, I have confronted these issues within myself as a requirement of our program to ensure that I can help others to the best of my ability. Having worked with some of these clients for up to a couple of months, I am noticing improvements in their lives and the increase of their overall happiness. Some of the clients thank me for helping their children or improving their relationships, which is not something that I was able to receive at first. This past couple, uh, this past week, a couple who had not been intimate for 14 years, uh, their daughter was concerned about divorce and they could not speak to each other without confrontation. Uh, they talked to me about their plans for date nights. Um, they planned four months out so far. They also chose to complete an exercise that was challenging and uncomfortable for them because they want to. Their daughter is so happy to see them talk to each other and liking to be around each other. It's moments like this in therapy that I know that I am doing what I should be. My past struggles have put me in a position that allows me to empathize with people feeling like they cannot live another day. I'm genuinely happy that I decided to take this path and help others for a living. I know that there will be many more moments like this and that I am ultimately capable of doing what needs to be done. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. And if you're, you know, afraid to share something with your therapist, just know that from all the therapists that I have talked to, um, that that, that, and I don't mean therapist necessarily that I am 
in therapy with, but friends who are therapists, therapists that listen to the show, that is super common, what, what she just shared, those feelings and those thoughts. And I think that's what makes that self-reflection um, is what makes somebody empathetic and to take in the larger picture. And it's good to question ourselves, you know, as long as it doesn't veer into shaming and self-obsession and all that other stuff. So um, I just love when someone takes uh, a wound and not only, you know, gets healed, but then goes out and helps other people with their wounds and brings their their experience uh, to bear. And it's, it's uh, you know, the times that I have been able to do it, obviously non-professionally, um, because I'm not a therapist, um, but again, I do look good in, in uh, I used to look good in slacks. Uh, it's an amazing feeling. It's an amazing feeling. And if we don't ask for help, we can never get to experience that down the road. And it's one of the greatest parts of life. And um, put that in your pipe. And uh, you know what? Put it in your bong. Enough with the pipe. You're wearing that thing out. <laughs> Did you hear my stomach? That was so fucking loud. Anyway, if you're out there struggling, just remember that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.